Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Welcome to The Gold Exchange. My name is Dixon Buchanan. I'm here with Keith Wiener. And today's episode is called One Radical Idea. Ready to jump in, Keith? I'm ready. So, so as mentioned, the, the title of this episode is One Radical Idea. And before we get to that, I just I want to kind of set the stage for what led up to uh, the formation of this idea, how it kind of crystallized in your mind. So could you, could you give us just a bit of background prior to starting Monetary Metals, prior to kind of the beginning of this idea of forming? What, what were you doing? What's your background? What were some of the things that you think are key that led to this? Interesting question. So I sold a company that I had built up over 14 years called Diamondware to Nortel Networks, August 19th, 2008. During that fall of 2008, at first I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. Um, and in fact, my investment banker, who was diagnosed with late stage cancer in the summer, right before the deal closed, uh, and who recovered, made a full recovery, he called me up in October and said, Keith, you're the luckiest bleep man in the world. <laughs> the guy who survived cancer said that to me. Um, because of the timing of it, I'm sitting in cash at the time when everything was, was going over the edge. So at first I felt kind of amused. It felt very surreal. But then as things continued to play out, I began to become pretty alarmed at what was going on. And at that point, I was reading and watching and studying everything I could related to markets and economics to try to figure out really just how to protect myself. I had worked 14 years, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to lose what I had just you know, sold my company for. Eventually it brought me to the professor of mathematics, but his real passion was economics. And um, so I came across his writings and it struck me at the time, I don't know if he's right or not, but he's the only one trying to get at the root of the problem, asking the fundamental questions. It seemed everyone else was just starting in the middle and the Fed's printing too much and all the sort of standard cliches that you hear. But what really led to this was an inevitable, um, how could you fix it? You know, as you, as, you, as you read all of the analysis post-2008, it was very clear, and there were plenty of commentators that were pretty clear on this, that all they're doing is, is leveraging up with more debt. Hmm. Right? So we're fixing a problem that caused, caused by too much debt by adding more. Right. You know, if there's an axiom in medicine, it's whatever is the poison that caused the disease, more of it can't possibly be the cure. Right. Um, you know, if somebody's an alcoholic and suffering from delirium tremens and all those things, you don't give them more alcohol. You might have to give them a little bit while you manage the withdrawal symptoms. Right. But, you know, alcohol is not the cure at, at that point, clearly. So uh, the, the same thing with the monetary system. And, uh, you know, as everyone started to declare in, in fall of 2009, I'm sorry, spring of 2009, hey, it's better. It's all good. You know, they fixed it. The Fed's got ahead of this thing. GDP is growing again, um, you know, jobs are being created. I was like, wait a minute, what did you do? Right. You just did more of the same. And so is there a way out of this is, becomes a question. And then the deeper and deeper you go, you realize that our monetary system has two fatal flaws uh, that are not, not reparable and, and certainly fatal. And one is the interest rate is completely off the rails. It can shoot the moon. So from after World War II through 1981, you know, the interest rate skyrocketed. 
um, and it can collapse to zero. And, and now that we've seen in Europe and Japan and, and elsewhere, uh, it can go below zero, which is kind of like a bizarre world where up is down and inside is out. And uh, so the interest rate is completely unstable. And with the unstable interest rate, you get unstable prices. Uh, that's problem number one. Problem number two is that there is no extinguisher of debt. That means that if you pay a debt, you pay in dollars. Dollars are themselves IOUs. If you pay a debt using an IOU, you shift the debt, but you don't actually make the debt go out of existence. So the debt is piling up, necessarily piles up exponentially. Of, of course, there's a finite point at which the debt can't pile anymore, and then it, it comes collapsing down, and that's the problem. So I started to think about all these things, and then I thought, well, gold is clearly, I mean, it's, it's obvious to a lot of people, I'm not the first or only person to say gold clearly has something to do with the solution. But, you know, how does gold solve the problem? A lot of people would say, well, it's a matter of price, right? So, so you know, the Keynesian will taunt you, if you say you're interested in the gold standard, the Keynesian will taunt you and say, well, there's not enough gold. Neener, neener, neener. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and the, the classic stock response from the, from the gold standard person who's, who's sort of put, put upon by that, uh, I, I use the word taunt. I don't really know what other word to use for that. It's to say, well, it's just a matter of price. Right. Price maybe Price will be. solve that problem. It'll just... Right. Maybe, maybe there's not enough gold, you know, at $1,000 an ounce, but at $100,000 an ounce, there's plenty of gold. Right. It turns out that, uh, number one, they should look at history. How much gold was in London, do you think, at the peak of the gold standard when London ran the world's commerce and the world's monetary system in the 1890s? How much gold do you think was actually there? I'd have to guess. So the current supply is what 180,000 tons or something like that. So I'm going to. That is the current. Yeah. The current estimate of the gold stocks by the World Gold Council, right? Yeah. About 180,000. So working back from there, half of that, 90,000 tons. I have no idea. So in, according to according to the records from the Bank of England at the time, there was 160 tons in London. Now that doesn't include necessarily what people had hid under the floorboards. Right. You know, within the Bank of England and, you know, the major recognized banks, 160 tons ran the world's financial system. 160 tons. That's it. Right. That was a time before computers and for even fax machines, even, um, I guess they had telegraphs in the 1890s, but very inefficient. You know, obviously paper receipts or everything. It was an inefficient commerce world, and yet it was so efficient, 160 tons was enough. Mm. To put that in perspective, in the state of Nevada, annually, they mine 166 tons. So is there enough gold? Well, we'll leave that for the for the people that like to debate, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen and, and those sorts of things. <laughs> right. But back to the economics, uh, is it a matter of price? Well, no, actually, it turns out it isn't. Gold did not circulate when it was under $300 an ounce around the year 2000. Gold did not circulate so far that we've seen at $2,000 an ounce, uh, which it nearly hit in uh, 2011, and it recently hit the summer over $2,000 an ounce. Um, and gold wouldn't circulate if it was $20,000 an ounce or $20,000 uh, or $200,000 an ounce. It wouldn't circulate. Uh, and that's because without paying interest, gold is just reporting. It's either something you hold better on the price to go up or you hold because you think, you know, inflation is going to take over or because you think it's a better speculation than whatever other bubbles everybody's piling into. But gold cannot circulate, will not come to market as a matter of price. It will sell from one person to another and the next person will do the same thing the first person does. He'll just move it to a different shelf uh, and, and continue to hoard it. Uh, what brings it out is interest. So the one radical idea, if you want a gold standard, 
you want gold functioning as money, not so much, I mean, this will come, gold being used as a medium of exchange. In other words, if I want to buy a car and you have a car to sell me, that I would hand you gold rather than um, $100 bills. Yes, of course. But more importantly, uh, in the context of a monetary system, that gold would be the basis for creating and extinguishing debt. That if you manufacture cars, that you would borrow gold in order to finance your factory. And that if you have gold, that you'd be lending gold to get interest. That is the, the key to the gold standard ultimately. And think of, it, think of it this way for a minute. Suppose you had a working gold standard and coins are actually circulating uh, as, as a medium of exchange. Um, for some reason, the interest rate, there's no longer interest available. Interest would drop to zero. What everybody who's working for wages has to do is, of course, they have to save during their working years. And so normally, savings means depositing in the bank to get interest. But suppose now there's no longer any interest. Well, in gold, nobody is going to give their gold away in exchange for zero. They'll just hoard it and stick it under the floorboards. Or maybe they'll pay a depository to store it, but that's not a monetary use of gold, that's just a dry asset. So if the interest rate goes to zero, everybody who's working for wages is going to literally have to pick the coins out of circulation and put them into private hoards. And then they would keep picking until all those coins disappeared, uh, just like the silver coinage disappeared after 1965. You know, little by little now, the silver wasn't worth that much. If those were gold coins, I guarantee you they wouldn't, you know, I, as a kid in the 1970s, I remember seeing silver quarters. There were plenty of them. I mean, they were being picked out, but not that quickly. If those were gold, those would have disappeared in a heartbeat. Right. You know, by, the end, by, by 1966, there would not have been a single gold coin anywhere. And so, uh, so interest is the key is the key to the whole thing. And so that was the radical idea for monetary metals. Right. Okay. Let me let me let me just press pause there because you've you've said so much uh, in in answer to that to that initial question, I feel like we could we could break up your answer and make 10 different episodes out of it. So so going back, um, as you said, the one radical idea is that, uh, yes, gold is part of the solution, but it's not just gold. It's not doesn't have anything to do with gold's price. It's gold with interest, which is what we need to resolve these two fatal flaws. It's it's interesting to me, you you go from being you know a software developer to starting your own uh, software company and kind of leading that company to its to a successful exit and then there's this massive transition to economics monetary economics in the middle of the great financial crisis and and what I want to know is a when when did it dawn on you that those were the two fatal flaws? in our monetary system? And then secondly, it, like, can you remember a time where the light bulb went off about, oh, it's gold with interest. We need to, we need to start paying interest on gold. That's the way out of here. I'm just curious if you could pinpoint kind of the, the, the revelation of those, two, of those two ideas. Yeah, you know, you're, you're bringing me back to think about, you know, the crazy events of fall 2008. To me as an engineer, the problem is compelling. An engineer, the type of engineer that I was, really thinks about systems and systems problems. And you know, you see a computer misbehaving, or you see some engineering system not quite, quite working right, and you're always thinking, okay, how do you solve that in an elegant way? So then, as I'm studying under Fekete, I'm seeing all kinds of different ideas coming together from the failure of central planning, uh, you know, for one thing, to 
the the use you know money is a is a signal in the economy or prices are a signal so if prices go up that's a signal to consume less and produce more but if the money itself was distorting that you'd have all kinds of problems that came from that as, as i alluded to earlier if the interest rate changes then automatically that reprices assets because the asset price is basically the inverse of the interest rate. So if the interest rate's unstable, then that means asset prices are unstable. So that guarantees you can have bubbles. And I think finally is the idea, you know, at least in the Austrian School of Economics, I think even the, even the monetarists, even the Friedmanites uh, realize this. Keynes puts far too much emphasis on consumption as the driver of the economy. But that's, that's madness. That's, that's magical thinking. If you're, if you're stranded on a desert island, or even if there's a hundred of you who shipwreck on a desert island, there's nothing to consume until you first produce. Right. So this idea that the definition and, in fact, the, the very purpose and utility of a currency is just simply to, to be a transaction medium for consumer purchases is missing the point that you have to finance the production of those consumer goods first. And so then I thought about gold, you know, well, thinking about money in that context, the dollar actually works pretty well at financing those things. We certainly finance mega factories and all kinds of stuff. Life is pretty good at the moment in the West. Then you think about the, the lack of extinguisher and the unstable interest rate, and you start to think, well, this is really bizarre. The interest rate keeps falling, and with each downtick, there's a perverse incentive to borrow more. And so if you didn't want to borrow at 5%, what about at 4 Oh, sir, now we're offering three. How about three? Would you borrow at three? Okay, well, not three. Okay, would you borrow at two? And with each downtick, you get more and more borrowing. And what you do is you drag down the return on capital to just marginally above the interest rate. So everybody is forced to work more and more frantically, like on a treadmill being cranked up faster and faster to get less and less return. And then I'm thinking about gold, and it's obvious that gold is part of the solution. And then all these ideas come together for me, and I think, well, that's it. Gold has to take over from the dollar, not as medium of exchange, that's reversing the cart and the horse, but as monetary asset for financing productive enterprise. It's about production. If we can, if we can solve the problem of production, I guarantee you consumption will solve itself because everybody wants to consume. So, so would you say then that it was in your studying under Fichette in the New Austrian School, was it during that time you arrived at this idea? Well, it, it kind of crept up on me. So, you know, I, I was giving talks and, and lectures at, at that time, starting in around 2010, and I used to have a slide which was a picture of kind of an ordinary um, residential plumbing system. Most houses have some sort of, I don't know if the right term is a check valve, but where the uh, city water comes to the you know to the house, there's you know that's the the fattest part of the pipe. It was at one inch diameter, I guess. And then there's a valve that just has a, a little lever arm. If that lever arm is parallel to the pipe, which is what it normally is, then the water will flow. And if the lever arm is perpendicular, you just bend it you know turn it ninety degrees, it will block the flow of of the water in the pipe. I used to use a picture of that and talk about gold, the interest being the regulator of flow. The other idea was, was the realization that in the dollar, the interest rate is arbitrary and meaningless. So in um, computer logic, like if you're designing a chip, you draw out your truth tables for what your circuit is supposed to do with various combinations of inputs. There's a little Greek delta, a lowercase delta, that you write in any box where either the output is arbitrary or you don't care. And then it, make, it might make it easier to design your circuit that way. If you have certain boxes, you don't care about the outcome or the output. And then I thought that um, in the dollar, the interest rate is, is a delta. Uh, and that's because 
to own a dollar bill is to be a creditor. There isn't actually the free choice of being a hoarder holding the gold at home versus bringing it to the system and lending it. The only reason to bring it to the system and lend it is if the interest rate is sufficient. So in, in the case of gold, you, you know, the default is no lending. But in the case of the dollar, not only the default, but in fact, there's a guarantee you will be a lender. That was the brilliance, if I can dare call it the evil, but it was genius, in 1933 to say you can't own gold anymore. Whereas to say now you can't not be a creditor anymore. Yeah. You cannot opt out. We're going to force all the animals into the pen and we're going to lock the uh, lock the gate. And now the only way out is through that, that chute that you don't want to go out through. Right. They, well. they, they, they close the exits and, and everyone's right. inside, right? Yeah. So now, at that point, the interest rate is completely, it's a delta. Yeah. I mean, interest rate could be anywhere because you as the saver have, I mean, you might have a preference, but in economic terms, you don't because you don't have any teeth. If your preference is violated, what are you going to do? And so that leads to my theory of interest in prices. Well, actually, you can buy consumer goods or commodities. So you get a cycle of rising prices and rising interest rates that come when your time preference is violated and they push the interest rate too low. And what happens when the interest rate writes itself from that, but also then the interest rate gets above marginal productivity of the entrepreneur, you get a falling interest rate. So you have all of these gyrations. You have a resonant system. The interest rate itself is kind of meaningless. It could be anything, you know, and, and all these ideas are sort of percolating around in my head. I get confirmation in weird ways. So I was thinking about this idea that once the interest rate is falling, it can't reverse once it gets past a certain point. And so when you think about that in that way, then the next thought is it's kind of like falling into a black hole, right? So if you're in a spaceship, as long as you're outside, every black hole has this radius that's called the event horizon. And as long as you're outside the event horizon, in theory, at least it's possible to fly away. Once you fall inside the event horizon, then it's guaranteed that you have to collapse into the black hole at the center because escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. Right. So there is no, even light can't escape. Uh, you know, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking the interest rate has surely got to that point. And this was, I want to say, uh, fall of 2014, I was at a, a monetary policy conference at the Cato Institute. And that particular year, they had, must have been four or five different, some of them were central bankers and some of them were academic economists. And all these guys, one by one, stood up and said, you know, I don't know what Chairman Bernanke is thinking. He should have raised interest rates, you know, six months ago. And they're all on the same playbook. They're all monetarists. They're all using the Taylor rule at the time or some close variant of it. And they're all presumed to say that the Fed should be raising rates. It struck me, they all have that same playbook, including Bernanke himself. The fact that they're all puzzled as to why he wasn't raising rates, and it clicked for me. Because I'm sitting here thinking about the analogy of, of the black hole the other analogy, we all had the experience as kids, and I grew up in, in what you'd call upstate New York. So it was kind of hilly, and there was certainly plenty of snow. You know, you'd make a big snowball, and you start pushing the snowball down the hill. You know, up to a certain point, it's actually effort, because the snow is heavy, and it's kind of sticky, and you have to pull the snow up off the ground or get the snow to separate it later. And you're pushing it, and you're pushing it, and you're pushing it. But the snowball is getting bigger exponentially, right? And then it gets to a point that uh, for lack of a better word, we can call it the oh, beep point. <laughs> you're, you're still moving along with the snowball. It isn't necessarily moving that fast yet. Right. And you're moving it and you get your hands on it and you're pretending and you're playing. But yeah. you know at that moment in your heart of hearts, you do not control that snowball anymore. That's right. The snowball is move, moving itself. No more no more effort expended. Yeah. Only, only two things control the fate of that snowball, and that's basically gravity and, you know, the house or the car 
at the bottom of the hill. Yeah, that it's going to smash into, yeah. right? That's right. It's going to go where it's going to go. Hopefully it misses and, uh, you know, good luck. And um, it struck me that that's the analogy for Bernanke at the time, trying to manage the interest rate was all these years, the Fed pushing and prodding and, you know, lifting and suppressing and all these things and playing and having their hands all over it. And eventually it gets to the point where it's now falling of its own, you know, I hate to say free will, it doesn't have free will, but it's falling of its own dynamic. Uh, you've set in motion something that is going to work the way it's going to work. Too bad. And that's where the Fed found itself. And that's why um, all these people, that were, some of them were pretty close to Bernanke. I mean, they had, uh, I want to say they had, um, was it Plasso or Evans there? They had a couple of presidents of the regional Fed banks. So when, when somebody like that says, geez, I don't know why, you know, uh, Chairman Bernanke is not raising rates, you got to pay attention to that because by all the rules he understands, Bernanke should have been doing that. And the fact that he didn't makes me think maybe he can't. Right. Maybe he's like the wizard in the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain and he's got this huge megaphone, right? And he's got all these amplifiers and all it takes is a little dog to just grab the curtain with his teeth and pull on it. And then you see that it's just this wise and little old geezer sitting there on a stool, you know, pretending, right? Right. And, uh, and you know, completely powerless other than he has a bullhorn. And uh, so, so that, you know, all these things sort of percolating in my head and then they all come together and, and, and you say, you know what? If gold could finance something productive, then that gives the investors a choice for the first time since 1933. And, and so then, then I play, you know, I, I like to do thought experiments and say, okay, Suppose you're an investor and you have a choice of lending $190,000 to a corporation that's going to do something productive with it. You have, you have a choice of two different bonds, but they're the same borrower doing the same thing with the same credit risk, the same balance sheet, the same everything, and the same interest rate. But one of them is going to pay you back $190,000 in 10 years, and one of them is going to, the other one's going to pay you 100 ounces of gold in 10 years. Which would you choose? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, nobody, nobody has the slightest idea what the value of a dollar is going to be in 10 years. I mean, not even the people who manage the dollar could predict that, uh, you know, let alone, you know, maybe the people who are more skeptical or, or dubious of the dollar. I mean, what, what do you think the dollar is likely to be worth? Then you think, okay, it's obvious that if, if there was interest on offer on gold, investors would take it. Now you say, okay, well, who would want to borrow gold? And then that leads you to a variety of uh, vertical markets where these companies are dealing in gold. And uh, and then the final, the final thought that percolated in my head, I guess there's a lot of them, is the realization everybody sees problems in the world. Mm. I mean, you can't be an adult of normal, you know, intelligence and not see problems. But what most people do is they see the problems and then they get together with their buddies and watch the football game and then they kind of bitch and moan about problems and then they go back to doing whatever it is they did. Or maybe they, you know, maybe the beer takes hold and they're not thinking about problems anymore. Or they go back to work on Monday morning and they forget about it. Some people think that, oh, let me go to the government and lobby the government to solve all my problems. And that isn't really very productive. And um, that's, at best, a Faustian bargain. So the entrepreneur is the crazy guy who says, I see a way to make money solving this problem. You know, thinking of myself as an entrepreneur, certainly much more than an academic or an economist, I said, okay, how do you make money doing this? Well, obviously, you build a business that... Uh, brings together people who have gold and want to get a return on it with businesses who need to finance something productive and are willing to pay interest in order to get the financing they need. That was the kernel of, you know, of the whole thing that, uh, you know, as you said, one 
uh, one uh, one unique idea. Right, and so that in essence is what monetary metals does, right? Brings opportunities that offer interest on gold. They match investors who want interest on their gold with businesses who have a productive use for gold and who can either lease it or borrow it. And that, that dynamic creates an interest rate market on gold in gold. That's it in a nutshell. What that does is that addresses the first of the two fatal flaws you mentioned earlier, right? We have this interest rate, the dollar interest rate markets completely unhinged from reality. It's been pushed and prodded and twisted and and turned by central bankers over the years, and it no longer is connected to what we might call time preference of savers or marginal productivity. It's it's been manipulated and distorted to where those things have been, you know, turned inside out. Very important price has become, you know, destructive in an in, in organizing capital structure. So that's the kind of the answer to number one. And then the answer to number two, in terms of the fatal flaws, no extinguisher of debt, that's just solved by virtue of the fact that it's gold, right? Because gold is no one else's liability. It's not a debt. It's not a promise to pay. Right. So if you think about what's a dollar and what's what's a gold coin, people may focus, it's almost like fetishizing the token. They look at the dollar bill as a piece of paper. That's a rectangle and it has green ink on it and so forth. But, you know, the paper itself doesn't have any value. It's the fact that it says dollar, uh, actually it doesn't say dollar, it says Federal Reserve note. And it's issued by the Federal Reserve and, you know, the law says it's money, so people treat it as money. But to have a gold coin is to have a thing, or to use a philosophical term, it's an entity. It is an actual object that exists, or we can call it an existent. To have a dollar is not to actually have a thing. A dollar is not an object that exists. A dollar is a relationship of owing. That is, to have a dollar is to be in a relationship where there's a counterparty that owes you one dollar. And so, you know, maybe in really simple, oversimplified terms, to have a gold coin is to have a positive thing. To, uh, to have a dollar is to be in a relationship of a negative. So one's a hole and one's, you know, maybe the ball that fills the hole. When you take that idea and explore it, you end up with some really counterintuitive things and this is what I would argue that uh, if there was to be a monetary science, that's what monetary science should do, is explore down and say, well, that's interesting. Okay, can I refute that? I mean, is that, did Keith just make up something that's bogus? Or is that really real? And if that's really real, then that leads to some very counterintuitive things. The dollar doesn't extinguish a debt because it's just a negative in itself. It actually is a debt in a way in itself. And um, whereas the gold coin is a positive thing. So if I owe you a gold coin and then I give you a gold coin, there is no debt instrument anymore. The credit is extinguished. And it turns out that extinguishing is a, is a really important feature for whole other thing, which is it keeps the borrowers, which is principally or certainly first the banking system, it keeps them honest. Right. I'm like, I, you know, if I'm a banker, I just can't take for granted that you're going to keep giving me your gold coin and letting me keep it indefinitely. Right. Uh, if you don't like the terms, whatever, you know, you might demand it back at the end of the uh, loan agreement or the end of the uh, you know, time deposit in, in the account. And so that, that redeemability, that ability to demand giving my gold coin back really is a very powerful motivator. And today, our entire system is dominated by the opposite of the forces of honesty that keeps them on their toes. And we call it moral hazard. 
right? If I'm the banker and I say, well, you know, I can count on Dixon to, he's going to keep his deposit here. What is he going to do? Bring it to another bank? <laughs> right. yeah. You know, and it's true. So I have to be, I have to make sure that I'm no worse than any of the other banks. Uh, but if the entire banking system realizes that, then whether or not they formally collude, whether they all get together at some place like uh, Bratton Woods or, or Jekyll Island, doesn't really matter. The incentives are lined up, then they're all going to end up in collusion, making sure that there's no outlier that's really particularly worse than any of the others, right? So, uh, but in gold, you know, there's a fundamental honesty to it. I can't help but think as we're talking, this all sounds, you know, well and good to you and I, we know each other. These are things that you've written, you know, literally hundreds of thousands uh, of words on, if not into the millions. And I've read most of those words. So it's, it's kind of familiar territory to you and I, but probably not to most people. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, we're talking about problems when you mentioned the problem of uh, an unhinged interest rate and the fact that we can't, we have this growing debt burden that we can't really seem to get under control. And there's actually no mechanism to get it under control. I mean, these are massive problems. These are problems that exist on a, on a scale that affects every human being on earth. Yes. Isn't that, wouldn't that be fair? Yes, absolutely. So doesn't it seem just a little far-fetched to think that we can actually make a dent in in any of these things i mean how would you i'm just curious how would you respond to to someone who would say that right like okay keith your your theory sounds great i like your ideas but do you really think you're gonna move the needle on this at all i mean these things are just too they're too big they're too ingrained they're too far gone how would you respond to that i think what i'd say is that a well-designed startup is designing itself around whatever the problem is they're trying to solve. So take Uber as an example. And Uber said the experience of trying to get a taxi you know, in any city in the world is really just a terrible experience. There's just so many things wrong with it. And um, so you're taking this problem, you're designing a solution. The most important attribute of that solution is that it's highly scalable. The reason why scalability matters is because investing in a startup is obviously a great risk. And the investors want to know that if things are successful, they're not going to make a few million dollars, but ultimately the business will go on and make billions. So uh, you're trying to design something that's scalable. In our case, if it is scalable, then it's solving the problem that we just outlined and it is moving the needle of the world. But scalability for a startup is nothing more than, uh, you know, once you have the idea and maybe the idea you know, the idea for Uber is relatively simple. You say, okay, everybody's got a smartphone and has GPS in it. It has Google Maps. Let's use that now for taxis. But there are companies that have uh, you know, complicated technologies as their, as their crazy idea where they get started. You know, Intel, the company that makes the chip in all, in all your computers, when they got started, you know, semiconductors were still a wild and woolly thing. And the people that understood it were, you know, these off the wall, you know, PhD physicist types. But once you have the idea, once the idea is well understood enough to start to build a company around it, scalability is just a matter of execution. Mm. And all, all startups that are, you know, serious players in the game that are trying, trying to get to scale are just always thinking about scalability. But in our case, scalability to get to scale means Right? And I think this is kind of a good working definition of the gold standard. You know, forget this idea that the gold standard is going to be imposed by having the Fed, number one, figure out what the right price of gold is, whatever the heck that means, and then ramming it down your throat by force of law. 
imposing or administering a, a price of gold, which is just absurd. I think a good working definition of the gold standard is when anybody wants to, you know, has the right but not the obligation to deposit their gold coin or gold period and to get interest on it. Or they have the right to take it home, take their marbles home and not play. If we can scale up monetary metals, then we're getting to uh, uh, achieving that definition of the gold standard. How many years did it take before Uber basically had that same proposition that anybody who wants to can pick up their smartphone and summon a car in any city in the world? You know, 10 years-ish, something like that, right? So that's what startups do as they design, you know, they build these platforms, a platform designed for scalability. You have to work out all the processes. You have to work out all the systems. You have to build the custom software. And once you get all that dialed in, you know, you scale like hell, you've achieved you know, the, the ubiquitous solution to the problem that you're setting out to solve. So if, if I can maybe try and repackage that a little bit, if monetary metals is able to do what it set out to do once, and it does that successfully, which that once being it pays interest on gold in gold, and then it does it another time, it does it 10 times more, 100 times more, 1,000 times more, 100,000 times more, each time the, the dynamics kind of self-reinforce, obviously because you incorporate new information as you grow, but to the extent that it repeats its success over and over, at that point, you look back and you hopefully say, we did it. Yeah, I mean, so notice now the conversation has shifted away from the craziness and away from the one uh, unique idea and into the kind of discussion that any startup would be having with its board or investors or for that matter, any class in entrepreneurship in, uh, you know, in Stanford University and in, in Silicon Valley or any other entrepreneurship program in any other school around the world. Okay, how does it work? So you have to do it once to prove the concept that you can make the mechanics actually work. You plug all these things together, you know, like building an internal combustion engine. The first one that somebody built, he really had to be nervous. Okay, now I'm going to give it a little bit of gasoline. Is it going to actually spin under its own power? It was all the time in my shop, my wife calling me crazy. Is this all for naught, right? right? And then you get it to sputter the life just for a brief moment. And then it flickers out and something happens and it leaks all the oil or whatever it does. Uh, but then you've proven something, right? You have to do one deal essentially where you know one investor or maybe a small handful of investors gets a little bit of interest on a small bit of gold with one company leasing it and if you do that and you say okay you know what all the pieces make sense they all plug in in ways that are predictable we could actually repeat that and then you do a second one with some more investors and some more gold on another company you do a third one by the time you get to three Right, this is just standard Silicon Valley startup kind of thinking. By the time you've got the three, you've proven you've proven a couple of things. You've proven the idea works, and you're you're on your way to proving that there's an, a market that you can address. So one question is, is there a market? Does anybody actually want this? And the second question is, can you address it? And those, that's a very different question, by the way. Sometimes there's a market and you can't address it as a startup. It's too expensive, too far away, too whatever. But if you've done three, you've started to prove that. So that's how you get to ten. And 10, you've proven there is a market and you can address it. And now you've started to dial in your business model. Now you know what it costs to set up a deal. You know what it costs, what you have to pay the investors and what you charge the company. And is there actually positive margin in this business? Because sometimes you have a business that, oh yeah, you can do lots of it, but actually you make a negative margin. Right, right. 
So that's nice, but um, not, not, you know, a, not, not a business you want to you want to continue. No, not unless you're you know Silicon Valley and it's 1999 and you know you say it's a new economy and it's all about eyeballs and who cares about revenue. Right, right. But um, you know, for something like this, so anyway, so you get to that point, and then at each subsequent mile, and these are basically milestones. Can you do one? Can you do three? Can you do ten? Can you start to get the cost out of it? Can you start mass producing them? Is there scalability? Do investors come in at a faster and faster rate at lower and lower cost of customer acquisition cost? And then each time, you know, there's a series of milestones that uh, an entrepreneur knows what he's doing, you know, working with his board or defining the milestones. And if you're achieving them, you're saying, okay, what's the next milestone? It's less and less about the crazy economic idea. Right. Economic theory, you know, sort of recedes into the background. Of course, that's what informed your business model initially, as physics informed Intel initially and before Intel Fairchild Semiconductor. So, uh, you know, you, you're developing your milestones. You're saying, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? And it's all about how do we make this at less cost available to more customers? Mm. And you keep doing that. Of course, yes, you build a brand. All of your customers are pretty excited. So then there's the whole crossing the chasm problem. You know, you have, you have a small group of loyalists that are so excited because let's say you're a dancing bear, just to, to use a cliche analogy from startup world, you're a dancing bear. You don't really have to dance all that good because I mean, hey, look, it's a dancing bear. <laughs> dancing at all is actually pretty cool, right? <laughs> right? I remember the early days of computers, it was this dare there that was dancing on this like chair or whatever it was. And there was some really cheesy music. So the animation was flickery. It was very low resolution. You know, but the, the animation was poor. The bear was crude. Music was extremely crude. And it was, I was just delighted to see it because first of all, it's a dancing bear. And then secondly, the fact that it was doing that at all on a computer that there was no indication that computer could even do that, that sort of thing. That was pretty cool. But in, in order for the industry to evolve, that computer was not real interesting not a lot of people wanted to spend $2,500 to buy an Apple II Plus computer in 1981. Very small market. Right. You have to work at getting the cost down. You have to get work on getting the performance up, better software, better user experience. And bit by bit, we built this thing that's now ubiquitous. Who doesn't have at least a couple of computers, one in your, in your pocket, which is your phone, and at least a laptop or a tablet or something, you know, it's all the, it's all the quest for scale. The same thing applies here. Can we move the needle of the world? Absolutely. It's just a matter of getting to scale. Can we get to scale? Well, we're doing it now. We're not all the way scaled up yet. We're, at, we're a heck of a way uh, uh, farther down the road than a handful of enthusiasts getting a little bit of interest on a little bit of gold from one uh, one borrower either. Yeah, and that was that was actually going to be my next question is, where would you say monetary, for, for those who aren't familiar with monetary metals, where would you say monetary metals is on that journey towards scale? I think we've proven that there's a there's a market and we can address it. I think we've proven that there's a, a reasonable cost to serve this market. That is that we can make a positive margin. Um, I think we've proven that there's scalability here if we can get the costs out and get the friction out. And that's kind of uh, the phase we're working on right now. That, you know, good news is that's at a pretty advanced stage because that's where you're really starting to de-risk and optimize the business. And then the next stage of growth comes from both de-risking and optimization. Mm. So it's no longer about, I wonder if anybody, like, so I start, before I started this thing, 
I talked to a lot of people that I knew through, through gold, and I'd been writing about gold for a long time. And pretty much the consensus in the gold world was nobody will give you their gold. Right. Forget about it. They won't, they just won't do it. And I said, I think people, I think the gold will come out for interest. And they said, nothing doing, forget about it, you're crazy. That's where entrepreneurship, you know, I guess that's where, that's that moment of truth. Mm. Somebody who has a job, maybe doesn't like his job, whatever, at night he's sitting there thinking about, I could do this. And then typically you share that, you know, idea with your family and friends and they're all naysayers. They're all, you know, negative Nellies. Nah, nah, it'll never work. Forget about it. Don't quit your job. You got to, you're in a good spot. I think a lot of, you know, would-be entrepreneurs probably stop right there because they listen to the negative noise. Now, in some cases, the negative noise are right. The idea really isn't that good or the idea is actually really bad. And the best thing you can do is listen to that advice. Uh, but in some cases, the advice is wrong, you know, maybe really spectacularly wrong, as I think, I think it is in this case. So there was a time when the it was an open question, would anybody trust a company with their gold? It wasn't that it was a consensus, it was ubiquitous. Nobody disagreed. Everybody said, no, no nobody's going to give up their gold, forget about it. I, I was the only one saying, no, I think they will. And, uh, you know, the good thing about... <laughs> You know, us still being a, a relatively free economy, if you're the entrepreneur who disagrees with everybody else, you're free to spend your own time and your own money pursuing your disagreement. Right. That's right. You don't have to get permission from some commissar. You just go do it, right? And if you lose your money, then eventually, you know, it stings enough and you get back in the line. But, you know, we've come a long ways away from that. There is no longer any question people will invest their gold with you know, with the expect, reasonable expectation of getting a return on it. And obviously to a company that has built a brand and a reputation, you know, internal controls uh, and processes to, to protect and safeguard that gold, of course, goes without saying, but people will invest to get a return because that's what has driven humanity forward since, you know, before the dawn of time, before history, was people looking for a better, a better solution for themselves and their families. It's just nothing more than that. Right. So if you are, are planting crops and saying, we'll do agriculture, that was a better life than being a hunter-gatherer. So they got village youth or whatever to say, I'm not going to go pursue that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for you as a farmer because it was a better life and a better living. So every step forward of, of progress has been offering somebody something better. That's what ultimately this is about. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, as, as I was thinking about this episode and just the title, One Radical Idea, one of the questions I was going to ask is, radical to who? What are the groups that would perceive this idea of paying interest on gold as radical? And I came up with two. I think you just touched on one, which, which is the gold community. Gold investors would certainly, at least prior to monetary metals, you know, balked at the idea of, you know, you want my gold over my dead body, right? You can pry it from my cold, dead hands. Right, exactly. But now we've discovered that, well, that, that actually changes once gold pays 2 3 4% per year and, and upwards of that, depending on the offering. And then the other group, though, and I guess I'm, I'm going to pose this to you as a question. You know, I, obviously, I have one in mind, but at this stage, who else does that idea appear radical to? I mean, pretty much everybody. Right. The mainstream, first of all, the mainstream would say, why are you messing around with gold? Right. <laughs> you know, why don't you just get a job at a conventional investment bank? Right. You know, you want to go do deals, you know, go to New York, get a job at, uh, at a bank and uh, run around and do your thing. Mainstream investors. I knew a guy who bought some coins that were supposed to be salvaged off some Spanish wreck in the Caribbean 
and he bought those, you know, he bought all that gold in 1980 and he lost his shirt. And that's supposed to mean that what? That gold is just intrinsically a terrible asset, right. you know? And then there's the people who are actually talking to a PR firm, interviewing them to, whether we want to hire them or not. This was back in 2016. And uh, our president of the PR firm, you know, looked up and said, you guys like want to what? Like replace the dollar with gold? You guys are insane. I, I don't want anything to do with this. And he, he you know, kind of fired us before we even got started. But she, I think, she was the president of this company was a woman. She, she fired us before we could even get started. She was just so blustering with offense and outrage and, you know, who, who the heck do you think you are? Outrage. Right. But then, you know, I, I think most people just look at it and think, well, gold, you know, pork bellies, you know, speculation, who knows? You know, right now gold's in a bubble and you know it's gonna whatever and i'd rather have safety i'd rather have uh uh i i, I load up on technology stocks because you know that's safer <laughs> i'm, I'm saying, saying that with my tongue and my cheek <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know because I, I i buy stocks with you know 150 uh uh you know p to e and you know that's safe whereas this gold thing that's that's crazy that's for crazy people i mean i think everybody would be dismissive of it right you know, and, and, and not to denigrate anybody, I think that's just the nature of human progress. There's an old saying that um, science advances one funeral at a time, and it's kind of morbid, and it's very pithy in a way. But, you know, there's some validity to that, that society tends to be conservative. And I, I don't mean po politically left or right, Republican or Democrat. I mean clinging to the status quo. Kind of a, an, a, a normalcy bias. Right. How, how things were done. Right is how things ought to be done, how things were yesterday is how things should be tomorrow. Right. And, and to the extent that you come along, so if you say, I have a new light bulb, it's going to fit in the same screw socket as all your old light bulbs, only it was used less electricity. First compact fluorescence, now we have LEDs. You know, those things slowly gain penetration unless they go lobby the government and they mandate it and they make the, they make the incandescent light bulb illegal. But, um, you know, short of that, uh, these things take a long time to penetrate, even if there's a clear benefit and it's incremental and it's not really the, so there's a clear benefit and the change doesn't really doesn't really ask me to change my behaviors in any way i just when my light bulb burns out i buy a different kind of light bulb but it has the same shape it fits in the same socket you know i don't buy new lamps or anything like that right and that takes forever to to go through because you know people are conservative now you're saying we're gonna we're gonna mess with the money you know we don't say that it's money not in our investment pitches anyway uh you can't really do that um, in, in my economics work, I'll talk about why gold is money and the dollar isn't, but in an investment deck or whatever, and it's gold and that's it. It's not, you know, quote unquote money. But um, people feel like you're messing with something at a pretty basic level and um, they either don't get it or in a lot of cases they willfully don't want to get it. Mm. At the end of the day, people do want something better. Yeah. You know, if the dollar is paying, you know, like, you know, rewind two and a half years and uh, you could get three over 3% on a 10-year treasury bond. So selling against that is potentially a challenge because people might feel that over 3% in a world where the central banks can't really gin up any inflation, that getting 3% on a treasury bond is pretty good for zero risk investment. Now, the 10-year treasury bond is, is well under 1%. So they're taking away most of the reward and that means that investors that are aware of this are, are, are more active at looking for something better because what had been good is, is really obviously not good anymore. So what do you do? If, if you don't want to buy a treasury bond, you want to go out on the risk curve and you want to start buying you know, B-rated uh, you know, corporate securities, what do you want to go do? 
So then suddenly the idea of getting a return on gold becomes in a relative way more attractive. Right. So at the end of the day, we're going to win because we're offering something that just makes sense. Apart from whatever people might feel the theory of it, the practice makes sense because it's fulfilling a need for them that they can't fulfill any other way. Right. Let's just kind of imagine you're, you kind of run into your average Joe or Jane on the street and, you know, you've, you've told them your radical idea, you know, they respond in such a way as like, gold, what do I need? What do I need gold for? Why do I need to earn interest on gold? You know, dollars work just fine. What, what would be your kind of elevator response to that? You know, obviously keeping in mind what you just said that, you know, at the end of the day, you want to offer something that's better, but to try and help people to see problems inherent in the dollar, what are the things that you point to? The first thing I'd want to do is I'd want to understand, are they you know, investing dollars for a fixed income return, like a true savings, or are they just betting in the, in the, in the casino, which is the stock market? Because there's some people that just put, you know, I've seen plenty of, of people you know, in their 30s now are just putting 100% of their life savings in the stock market because they think that you know, the stock market can't really go wrong or they believe the Fed has their back or whatever it is they believe. You know, in a lot of cases, they may be a bit young to remember the you know, incredible collapse of 2008 or they think the Fed has figured it out, it's never going to happen again or whatever. Of course, I'm old enough to remember that in the lead up to that, the Fed had said it was at a permanent plateau and that the Fed has ended the business cycle and all these things that were believed in the run-up from you know 2001 to 2008. So if, if they're just betting in the casino you know, with extremely high confidence, there's not a lot that you can really say to somebody like that because they have the, the certainty of somebody who's young and inexperienced. So, but if the person is older and he's clearly lived through and maybe even suffered in, in uh, uh, the global financial crisis, of 2008 and now you know let's say he's in his 50s or 60s and he's a lot more inclined to fixed income and the person says you know dollars fine whatever i say well just what return are you getting right now and do you really think you're going to get to your retirement goals at that rate and by the way the, as we're not talking about the scenario when the fed loses control and everything goes completely bananas what about in the scenario where the fed achieves its objective its stated objective is two percent debasement of the dollar per year Right. Now, I don't agree with the very metric of how you measure that debasement, which is consumer prices. But, you know, in the, in the mainstream theory to which that person adheres, the Fed is trying to take away 2% of the value of that per year. What exactly are you getting on your investments or fixed income investments right now? And if you're getting 2% or whatever, it's basically you're getting zero. You're not going to ever retain your retirement goals ever. You're on a treadmill. You can't move forward. Do you not see that? But as I say, I have, a, I have a, a simple answer that may be less satisfactory, but much more practical from a business perspective, which is, you know, all the gold that's been mined in human history is in somebody's hands. And um, that, that you can change from hand to hand every time somebody buys, it means somebody else sells. We don't have to persuade people who don't own gold to go buy some. We just have to persuade the people who do have gold why it's better to get interest on it rather than pay to store it. Mm. Or to take the risk of a home invasion or a fire, you know, at home and, and just store it at home. And so that's a very different proposition and a much easier one. Because now there's a direct, you know, direct tie to self-interest versus trying to persuade somebody who's a paper bug why he should own some gold. That's, that's hard. Persuading somebody who's paying 0.75% per year to store it, why it would be better to get paid 3% to invest it. That's relatively easy. 
Very good. So just kind of looking to wrap up this discussion, started out talking about what led to the formation of the radical idea, your background, software development, entrepreneur, running a business, selling a business, making this kind of massive sea change transition to economics, but then coming back to uh, the entrepreneurial world and starting monetary metals out to solve very large problems, deep problems, gold, obviously a part of that solution. And to the extent that monetary metals makes forward progress in that journey, that that radical idea of gold paying interest becomes less radical at the end of the day. The more, you know, the more success, the more deals you do, uh, the more you move forward there. What, what once seemed so radical and otherworldly and extreme begins to look like it should have existed all along. Isn't that true for all entrepreneurial innovations? And just take Uber as, as my example to keep beating that dead horse to death. Before Uber, nobody thought of it. That's right. It, it took Travis Kalanick to, to think of it. After Uber comes out, well, it's, sure, it's obvious. You know, you don't need to see Uber's code. You don't need to talk to their scientists to figure out how to do it. It's just, oh. That makes sense. I've had a couple of people over the years try to sort of say, gotcha. And the gotcha is, you know, your idea isn't really very new, is it? People have done that for thousands of years, haven't they? <laughs> I'm like, you're absolutely right. But what's new is figuring out how to make it relevant in this world, in this economy, and figuring out how to get it started when they choked the life out of the gold standard in 1933. It's been dead for going on 100 years. You know, when you have a lifeless corpse, a little harder to figure out how to breathe life into it than you know back, back what it was a couple of thousand years ago when nobody could have dreamed of choking the life out of gold you know as such it's an idea that i think in retrospect is obvious it was obvious 87 years ago it was obvious mm. i gave a talk at uh, the harvard club uh what was this three or four years ago and um have all this memorabilia on the walls and one of the one of the things caught my eye immediately was a gold bond that was bought by the harvard uh, endowment what is it the president and fellows of harvard or whatever it was called and uh, it was in 1902 1906 something like that it was a 98 year bond and right on the bond it specifies it's to be payable in the standard gold coin and it's printed right on there. So this idea of lending your gold and getting it back with it and getting interest on it and then getting gold back at the end, that, that idea is not new. It was obvious in, in 1902. It's no longer obvious just only simply because everybody's been programmed by, you know, TV and uh, um, the government education system. And of course, the regulatory world that we live in, I call it the regulatorium. Every government-induced signal is telling you that money means pieces of paper with green ink on it. Right. If you do a Google images search and search for money, you will get, you know, pages and pages. You can just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. It's all dollar bills, right. cartoon dollar bills, real dollar bills, pallets of dollar bills, it brings pictures of loot, you know, grabs from, from movies. It's all paper with green ink on it. That's the, that's the madness of crowds. That's the prevailing mythology. Of course, it isn't true. Uh, and that's what makes this unique idea, you know, compelling, I think. You're absolutely right. And it, as, as you were talking uh, just now, it made me think of that. You know, it's, it's become a popular question now in Silicon Valley and I guess amongst entrepreneurs, startup culture, that famous question by Peter Till, which is, you know, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? And we basically, this, this entire discussion has been kind of your, your answer to that. That's right. The gold, you know, was once highly prized. For its you know usefulness in 
facilitating transactions, especially financing, and, and could be and will be once again. Right, that's the thing. I think Peter Thiel said, what's the one truth that nobody agrees with you on? But, <laughs> okay. um, something like that, yeah. And uh, this, is, this is that truth, that you know, as the entrepreneur, you're betting against the entire world, I'm right and you're all wrong. <laughs> you either have to be that right combination of hubris and or um, really confident you know, in, the, in the validity of your idea. This has been a lot of fun to have this discussion and to kind of dive into the radical idea behind monetary metals. I'm going to end this on a quote by Peter Thiel. It comes from that same book, uh, Zero to One, which is where, where that question comes from. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? And this is what, this is what Peter says right behind that uh, as it relates to that question. He says, this question sounds easy because it's straightforward. Actually, it's very hard to answer. It's intellectually difficult because the knowledge that everyone is taught in school is by definition agreed upon. And it's psychologically difficult because anyone trying to answer must say something that he or she knows to be unpopular. Brilliant thinking is rare, but courage is an even shorter supply than genius. So to wrap us up, uh, what struck me about that quote is it's one thing to discuss uh, having a radical idea. It's another thing altogether to have the courage to start a business, you know, built upon that idea and to actually put it into practice. So thank you again, Keith, for the time. It's been a privilege. Uh, we'll see you again on the next episode of The Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.